Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians was written to address the issue of division in the church, and so Paul's letter to the Corinthians is fundamentally a letter uh, and an appeal for unity. Last week, we looked at chapter 8, where Paul called on the stronger Christians in Corinth uh, who were boasting of their strength in eating meat offered to idols to limit their freedom for the love and sake of their weaker brothers and sisters. Now, while, while it may seem as though chapter 9 is this long digression, Paul has not left the problem of food sacrifice to idols. He is tacking and using the means of financial support and entitlement to continue his rebuke of the Corinthians concerning food, idolatry, and love. Paul is offering a picture here of his own life where his strength is used to lay down privileges and entitlements to win and love others to Christ. Now, Paul is going to address two things uh, in this text today. Number one, that, that gospel Christianity is generous to those who lead the church and that gospel Christianity leaves no room for entitlement. And Paul is going to spend, in these verses, time building a case for his own compensation just so that he can tear it down. So let's begin with verse one. We just read a moment ago, but it's good to read it again. Let's start in verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as, uh, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Paul establishes first through these series of rhetorical questions that he is no less free than the strong in Corinth. And then he cites two grounds for his apostleship. The first is the qualification of his call and his commissioning. Not only did he see Jesus after his resurrection, he heard him. Jesus appeared to Paul and gave him explicit marching orders. Therefore, Paul is a true apostle commissioned by Christ directly. The second ground he cites is the Corinthians themselves. This existence of a body of believers in Corinth verifies Paul's apostleship. So even if others might challenge the legitimacy of his ministry, Corinthians can't because their existence as a community of faith is dependent upon Paul's work in their midst. They, the church, are the stamp on Paul's ordination papers. Biblical credentials include living, breathing people and how they are doing with the Lord. Now, Paul did measure his apostleship with transformed lives, but he also made this measurement through claiming his legacy in a very divided and broken church that struggled with incest, with petty lawsuits between covenant members, and, and sleeping with prostitutes. So he could have picked a much better church to validate his pastorship, but he didn't. But even so, Paul is being put on trial. He's being examined. So the very church he planted is attacking him and the grounds for his ministry. They're close to denying the very role that he's played in bringing the good news of Jesus to them. And so Paul, 
cuts through their sense of entitlement with his own right for what he's owed. And he says, okay, let's, let's get down to it. I agree with you. I am free like you. I am an apostle. I do deserve your money, just like all of the other apostles and leaders you support. I do deserve to be able to support a family. I have the right to request money. Barnabas and I have that right. In fact, we've earned it. In fact, let me talk about why it's right for me to ask for it. And so he continues in verse 7, points at his own work of ministry. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? At this time in Corinth, the strong, popular, culturally in vogue leaders of the day made their money through support that they got from rich benefactors. Kind of like everyone had an in-house intellectual life coach and teacher on retainer that taught them how to live, that guided them, that taught their family, that formed their household. Consequently, wealthy patrons had leverage and sway in those relationships with those leaders, and this created a lot of relational debt and entitlement and pressure. It would ensure that even though an individual's leader was the one leading, he was ultimately dependent upon the sponsorship for his livelihood. The Corinthians were looking for a win-win, a respectable leader that they could relate to, but that they could also control. And with Paul, they get a lose-lose because he isn't respected in their eyes and they can't control him because he won't accept their money. Paul supported himself as a tent maker, which was considered very low-end, very menial labor. His lifestyle and means of self-support would have been points of concern for the Corinthians. So he begins by stating his financial rights and backs them up in these verses. Simply put, he says, ministers do not live on air. They do have authority to expect food and drink in return for their labors. Moreover, they have a right to take and support a family on that ministry income. So to illustrate the work of a minister and further plead his case, Paul takes us to a barracks and to a vineyard, a wilderness, a field, and a granary. And he argues for his compensation that is fully supported in Scripture, but he begins with an appeal to the very nature of things in the world, ordinary evidence. When a soldier is recruited, he does not buy his own gun, his own uniform, his own rations, his own place to stay. The vineyard hand and the shepherd draw their support from their labor directly. Bottom line, a minister should be supported by the field he's working in. Paul guarded the Corinthians like a dutiful soldier, tended to them as God's vineyard with diligence and hard work. 
and cared for them deeply like a protective shepherd would. He had every right, every entitlement to make his living as their minister. Ordinary practice supported this. It, it even demanded it. But then he makes another defense for his support. He takes the law. He takes the Old Testament, the portion of the Bible that was written before Christ, and he takes this law in Deuteronomy about oxen, and he says, well, but it's not really about oxen. It's instruction for our treatment of other human beings. Since the ox is doing the work, he should not be cruelly restrained. He should be allowed to eat the food that his own labor is producing. No human should be reduced to mere mechanical instrumentation serving only the welfare of others. The one who plows should have a share in what's plowed. The one who threshes should have a share in the profit. This is a universal principle, Paul says. So it applies to those in ministerial positions as well. It applies to me as well, he says. Biblical labor is mindful, it's interested, it's invested, it's noble, and it's hard. The minister who labors should be no different than the plowman. The minister who labors should labor in hope. Now, these verses offer some lessons for our church today, for the church today. Number one, the church's pastors and leaders deserve financial support. And number two, that financial support should not predispose any pastor or leader to favor the wishes or the inclinations of some over others. In our evangelical circles, it's easy to find both heavily paid and heavily underpaid ministers of the gospel. There are ridiculous examples at both ends of that bell curve. So faithful pastors should be appropriately compensated, but determining what's appropriate, that's, that is where it gets a little more difficult. So how are we to think about these things? When the church pays the pastor, it's not doing the pastor a favor. When a pastor gets paid, that pay compensates for valuable labor. It's not charity to pay a pastor. It's not purely an act of generosity to pay a pastor. Now, some churches do pay generously, but the fact that they pay at all is not generosity. It's, com it's compensation for valuable labor. Now, I'll say, I'll speak for myself since I know that the rest of our staff and elders have their own stories and experiences but serving as a pastor here at Sojourn is an incredible privilege and blessing, an incredible privilege and blessing, but it is also difficult. As a pastor and a counselor, I get to sit with hurting, angry, anxious, wounded people, and I promise you, I would not be anywhere else. I don't wanna be anywhere else. In my opinion, it's the best seat in the house. I feel a kinship with Paul when he says, necessity has been laid upon me. I have to preach the gospel. I feel that. It's true. It's beautiful, and I am so grateful for that, and I am grateful for you. There are moments when I get to see Jesus changing someone right in front of me, seeing people, fearful people, become courageous by the grace of God. 
sat with people experiencing adultery in their marriages and seen them repent and seek forgiveness and healing. It's a grace to me to be able to be people with people in the foxhole and in the weeds. I do get to witness God's particular grace in those spaces, but amidst all of that beauty, in that mess, <laughs> it is difficult. Because as a pastor, I'm never not a pastor. When I was a banker at Frost, my workday ended at 5 p.m. I didn't open any accounts at 5.01 or beyond. But that's not true for me now. And even though sitting with people in difficulty is what I know I've been called to do as a pastor, those foxhole moments do stay with me. And even though the counseling room is regularly climate controlled, it isn't always a place where things are under control. And I'm not just speaking for myself. Our staff and elders, they wrestle with the joy and difficulty of their callings as well. I can say it can be awkward sometimes to be invited to a barbecue and have someone approach you about your sermon but not talk to you as a friend or not talk to you because you're a counselor and if someone sees you talking to me that they'll wonder what's wrong. I promise I won't try to fix you if you start talking to me. <laughs> Perhaps it's like having a friend who's a doctor and you either want to let them check your mole <laughs> or, or listen to your beef over the state of the healthcare system. I admit it's awkward for me. It's awkward for me sometimes. I can feel responsible not to fail you in the pulpit or in the pew. I've often been tempted to see the pulpit kind of like the gallows. And if I preach well, there's a stay of execution. I've been pardoned. And if I don't preach well, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> it's pretty dark. Um, I would rather, I would rather always see this space as a well-stocked dinner table that we all get to enjoy. Sometimes, plainly, I just want you all to see me as your friend and brother, and while I enjoy being conscientious, it's a way to wonder regularly who's watching, who's listening, and what they might be thinking or inferring. In short, it is beautiful, and it is difficult. So in all this talk of pay and compensation and ministry, I think it would be good for us to look at our, our sojourn compensation philosophy of which I'll just read a portion, but it will be on the screen behind me. This portion reads like this. Because our compensation philosophy is rooted in scripture and meant to exalt Jesus, we should expect it to look different than any other business. Whereas good businesses pay their employees well, we want to pay our employees generously and lovingly. It's important to acknowledge the depth of partnership between a church and its leaders where the spiritual vitality of a church correlates significantly with the spiritual vitality of its leaders. Scripture requires that pastors manage their own households well, for how else will they care for the household of God? Accordingly, a church suffers when it muzzles the ox and makes it difficult for a pastor to manage his household. When free from monetary anxieties at home, leaders are empowered, the church is strengthened, 
So in caring for its leaders, the church cares for itself. Sojourn, it's, it's laid upon the elders to care for and advocate for your protection, your equipping, your teaching, and your discipline so that you are not left to care for and advocate for yourselves alone. And in equal measure, it falls to the congregation to advocate for the care of the pastors and the staff and leaders here so that we are not advocating for ourselves alone. In part, this is why Paul is fighting for the principle that good and godly ministers should be paid and why he fights for the principle that defines good and godly ministers as those who are willing to forego what is their due for the sake of the gospel and the mission of God. Paul's foundational reality comes to the front in these next verses, so let's keep moving. Let's look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things, to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul has built this case with ordinary evidence, biblical evidence, and then he seals his argument. Even Jesus commanded that I as a minister of the gospel be compensated from the tithe in the church. When Paul talks about enduring anything to avoid placing an obstacle in the way, he wants to make it easy as possible for anyone to receive the gospel. It is precisely what the socially strong were not prepared to do. The word for obstacle would have called to mind a metaphor drawn from a military context of blocking an enemy's advance. To, to stop an enemy, they would literally cut the road into pieces so that no th nothing and no one could pass. When John the Baptist called for the people to receive Jesus, he said, prepare the way for the Lord. Make uneven ground level. Paul didn't want to disrupt the level pathway for the gospel's proclamation and advancement. Paul doesn't want freedom or rights or entitlement to be the offense because it's a false stumbling block. He would rather the stumbling block be the message of a crucified Christ. And Paul gives up his rights for the sake of the weak out of Christian love. This ethic is key to his position on eating meat offered to idols. Because he's governed by the gospel and how to win people to Jesus. So he surrenders an irrefutable right so that they can better win people to Christ. He was not the hero that Corinth wanted, but he was the hero that they needed. So Paul describes at length the rights that he has an apostle, and then he describes why he will make no use of those rights. But Paul does want us to see that the danger to love and the free gospel is entitlement. The Age of Enlightenment, which began in the 18th century, brought a lot of advanced ideals like liberty and the scientific method and constitutional government but most markedly, individual liberty and personal rights. It created a cultural sense of entitlement. Of course I deserve to go to that school. 
Of course I deserve to have my hard work rewarded. Of course I get the promotion. Of course I get the best spouse and the best kids and the best future and the best life. And at the very least, perhaps we feel entitled to at least an Instagram persona that matches our actual life with an unending string of notifications that prove that not only others just notice our life but envy it. But entitlement, as Paul is getting us to see, entitlement kills relationship. It kills the very thing that we're hoping to build and protect in the church. Entitlement distorts our perception of reality. That's one thing it does. See, the Corinthians could not see straight. They believed they deserved a particular leader, so they look at Paul and they say, okay, he either owes it to us to adapt or to disappear. Entitlement puts us in a position where people are indebted to us, where we are deserving. But entitlement also, entitlement also impairs our ability to receive gifts or express gratitude. The Corinthians had been given the life-saving news of the gospel. They had been given a committed and sacrificial leader in Paul, but their entitlement overshadowed any gift they had. Are you, more, are you more often unaware of what you've received? Are you more often aware of what you're not getting? Perhaps you want a spouse so badly that you can't see the loving friendships that are right in front of you. Maybe you want a different spouse so badly that you can't see the gift of the one who's already been given to you. Maybe your prevailing demand for that raise has blinded you to the very salary that is currently sustaining your family. See, when we're entitled, we become blind to anything we do receive in light of what we expected to receive. When we're entitled, we can't express gratitude because we aren't able to even experience it. Entitlement turns, and this is the scariest one for me, Entitlement turns us against the world and those we love. When we're entitled, the people who are even actually trying to help us look like they're hurting us from our perception. It turns, it makes us see best friends as enemies, spouses as opposition, covenant members as roadblocks, and leaders who are holding out on us. It makes us unable to see anyone but ourselves, and that is not whom we need to see more clearly in order to be truly free. Paul is saying, Corinth, sojourn, entitlement is a goose chase without a goose. There's nothing to catch in it. Now, one way this plays out negatively in the church, it can be that the pastor and the congregation can become so entitled based on the exchange of money. So a pastor can feel that he's to be paid like an investment banker. And when you feel entitled to be paid that way, anything less than expected breeds discontentment. Same thing for the church. You are paying for a man to be faithful. But if you think you're paying for a man to be excellent, then you'll be sitting here on Sunday and either the sermon is good or it's not what you want it to be creates a scenario where the pastor doesn't feel fully empowered to say something difficult to the congregation when needed. 
or the entitled congregation says, we're paying your salary. You don't get to talk to me like that. We're paying you what I consider to be an A-plus salary, and you're giving us C-minus sermons. That's, this will not do. If a pastor feels entitled to their salary, they are not receiving their pay as grace. And if the church feels entitled to a quality sermon, they are going to struggle to receive any sermon as a gift from the Lord. Because when a sermon is 90% bad, entitlement will blind you to even the 10% that's good. Like this sermon. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding. But the free, <laughs> the free charge gospel, the free of charge gospel, allows us to receive everything as a gift. See, there is something more important than exercising our rights and exercising our entitlement. Could there be a place where we don't have to cling to our rights in order to survive? Could there be a place where we're free to secure love and service for others rather than trying to accumulate more of it for ourselves? Where others will give to us even when we don't deserve it? Where people will love us even when we're unlovable? Where we can forgive people when they trample on our rights and they can forgive us when we trample on theirs? Could there be? Paul's going to show us. Let's look at verse 15. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For, I do this, for if I do this of my own will... I have a reward, but if, if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul has been talking a lot about compensation, money, ministerial support, but Paul's point is not about money. That's not the underlying issue. Paul's boast is connected to preaching the gospel. His boast would be emptied if he stopped preaching the gospel or if he preached it or appeared to preach it for any kind of monetary personal gain. Some are compelled to speak because of their need for money, which in turn means that they're compelled to preach only to those who can pay. But by refusing the fee... Paul exercised the freedom to preach to everyone and anyone. By offering the free gospel free of charge, Paul's ministry becomes a living paradigm of the gospel itself. His reward is to walk in the path of Jesus, who set aside his rights and entitlement for Paul's good. Like Jesus, Paul is setting aside his rights for the good of the Corinthians, and in that gospel economy, there is rich treasure in doing so. Now in this, we could slip off in one direction or another. Maybe we'd slip off into the entitled, self-important pastor, presuming that by asking for a raise, he must necessarily receive a raise. On the other hand, there are some who purposely withhold adequate compensation out of a misguided sense of justice or imposed holiness. But since both of those mindsets are opposed to the gospel, Paul rejects them both. 
If Paul were paid like a televangelist, he would deserve every penny. But precisely because he is the kind of man who would deserve it, we find out that he's also the kind of man who would refuse every penny rather than jeopardize the mission. Thus, in the kingdom of God, the leaders who are the most deserving are the most unassuming and most self-sacrificing. In the kingdom of God, it's in giving that we receive. In relinquishment of our entitlement, we find freedom. When we give up our rights, we identify with Christ. We lose our life, we find it. We're forgotten, but we're remembered. Wouldn't it be so liberating for... (laughs) to blessedly self-forget and love God and love others, to be freed from a need for a personal highlight reel through Facebook or Instagram, to be not only the best kind of friends but the best kind of enemies in our city. Faithful ministers ought to be paid, but what does that faithfulness look like? In part, it looks like a willingness to forego payment. These are the sort of staff and elders and leaders that sojourn should be willing and glad to support people who are willing to go without pay that they are absolutely entitled to for the sake of the gospel. In Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, Two Men, Charles, uh, Charles Denay and Sidney Carton are in love with the same woman named Lucy. Lucy eventually marries Charles, much to Sidney's pain and dismay. Later in the novel, Charles is on trial for treason against the crown, and he's thrown into a dungeon. His execution is imminent. And at this point, Charles and Lucy are not only married, but they have a daughter. And so Sidney, who looks almost identical to Charles, breaks into the prison, and he drugs Charles, and he trades his clothes and he has him carried out of the dungeon, and Sidney stays to die in Charles' place. At the very end of the book, as he is headed to the gallows, another prisoner begins a conversation with him on their way there, and this woman notices that he's not Charles. And her eyes widen, and she says, are you, are you dying for him? And he says, yes. Yes, for him and his wife and child. And she says, sir, I'm so frightened. I don't think I can face my own death. But if a man like you would hold my hand, perhaps I could face it. And Sidney says, I will. And at the gallows, he says, he says this, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss and in their struggles to be truly free and their triumphs and defeats, though long to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth, gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. Sidney was a free man with all of the rights and privileges that freedom affords but he relinquished his freedom so that Charles and Lucy and their daughter would be free to enjoy the privileges, the very privileges that he forfeited. How would you be changed if you knew that Jesus has done this for you? Traded places in that cell.
the most deserving man to ever live, gave up his privilege and entitlement in order to provide wholeness and strength free of charge to all of us. The free of charge gospel is free because the one who gives it is the one who purchased it. These are the outlandish rewards of a free gospel of Christ. No wonder Paul didn't want to get in the way. He gives us an example of how entitlement is relinquished through self-renouncing love. Jesus, the one who was shut out so that we would be welcomed in. The one who was mocked so that we would be held in high honor. The one who was bound and confined to a cross so that we would go free. The one who became poor so that we would know what it meant to be rich. And now in him we're freed from using other people to play a role for us. We can, we can be free to let others be who they are and not who we need them to be. We can enter relationships to serve others, not to be served. We can stop putting the world on trial. And in giving up entitlement, we're actually free to love others. And that is a far, far better thing that we do. That is a far, far better rest than we have ever known. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for trading places with us. And we thank you for your intervening grace and your gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a family, a home, a church your bride that would be glad to lay down all rights in the name of love just as you have done for us. To recapitulate your life in the life of this church, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to do just that. To joyfully lay down our rights, our entitlements. Where, whatever wealth we hold, position, status, money and friendship, pray that you would kind of empower us and lead us and call us to lay down the entitlement so that your gospel would continue to be free of charge, free of entitlement. That by your grace, it's been freely received, bought at an infinite cost. May we be a people that proclaim this beautiful, outlandish, lavish love that you have given us in the gospel, in your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.